The following audio is from Summit Church. For more information on Summit Church, visit www.summitonline.tv. Good morning and welcome to Summit Church. Uh, It's just a joy to see you here this morning. I know it's uh, Parents Weekend at the University of Oklahoma, so if you're a parent here visiting your college student, you're welcome uh, to be here. We love that you're here. Uh, We love your students. We love your kiddos. Uh, Their passion to serve and to really proclaim the gospel is a huge reason why Summit Church is what it is. So we love our college students. We thank you, parents, for being here, for everyone else. Uh, We are in John chapter 4. We took kind of a three-week break uh, to do a little series called Journey to the Cross, because last week was Easter. Uh, But we're going to dive back into our study of the book of John. If you have not been here, this is our eighth week in the gospel of John. Uh, we're going to go all the way through it, uh, so we're, we're plugging away, uh, but we've got a ways to go. Uh, one announcement somehow, just one announcement, makes me feel so happy when there's just one announcement. Uh, tonight at 5 o'clock, it is the first Sunday of the month, therefore, it is a night of worship night. Uh, I say this every time, it's just going to become repetition. What are you going to do from 5 to 6 o'clock tonight that would be better? than coming and just sitting in the presence of God, worshiping Him. Uh, It should be a beautiful, should be a wonderful night of just experiencing Him. And so I encourage you, I encourage you to take what you were going to do and say, let's make that a priority. If you've got little ones birthed through kindergarten, we will gladly watch them for you in our children's ministry area. Uh, But we want the other ones to come worship with the family. So first graders on up, we want you in here. We want to have a wonderful evening, 5 to 6 o'clock tonight right back here, night of worship. Let's pray. Dive into John chapter 4. Father, thank you for this day. Um, I believe that, God, you made this day, and I know that you have brought us here for a purpose. That purpose is for you to make much of your own name, uh, for us to hear your word, for your Holy Spirit to move in us and through us to do great things, and Lord, for us to leave here looking more like you. Uh, That doesn't happen unless we Uh, willingly place ourselves before you. So I just pray that all of us in this room today would acknowledge that you are here, that you are Lord, that you are in control of whatever might be going on. And God, we would just turn our hearts and our minds, just our ears to you, to hear what you have for us today. And God, that you come do what only you can do. We love you. It's in the name of your son, Jesus, that we pray these things. Amen. John chapter 4, 26 verses today. That's a lot. We, we will have to keep moving to get through it in a timely manner. Uh, it's a conversation. It's a conversation between Jesus and between a woman that we simply know as the woman at the well. And you'll see why she's called the woman at the well. But that's the only name we know her by is the woman at the well. It's a beautiful conversation. It reminds us of John chapter 3, another conversation between Jesus and a man named Nicodemus. The similarities in the conversation, there, there really are none, but the result of the conversation is beautiful truth. Some things that I think we need to know, some things I think that we need to apply to our lives. Uh, it appears that John, the author of the gospel, loved these conversations as a way to impart huge theological thoughts, and that's what we're going to get to in verses 21 through 24 today. So uh, he loves the conversations. I love the conversations. As always, I want you to place yourself in the conversation. 
as an eavesdropper. You're, you're watching, you're soaking in, you're placing yourself there as, as an observer um, in order to fully understand the context of John chapter 4 and especially the first few verses. You do need to know one thing. John the Baptist, not the author of the gospel, but John the Baptist has recently been arrested. He's been arrested by Herod. In a few months, he'll be beheaded. This has ratcheted up the pressure in Judea, just around Jerusalem there. Um, and it is time for Jesus to kind of make a decision. Is he going to stay in and around Jerusalem where the religious leaders have a stronger foothold, where he's becoming very, very popular? He's trending up, as we would say in today's language. Is he going to stay there where he's popular, but where he's also facing some strong opposition? Or is he going to flee? That's the first few verses. And I really do believe that the fact he is not ready to die, um, he's not ready to be arrested and imprisoned, is the reason for his choosing to go. And we'll see that here in the first few verses. John chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. Now, Jesus learned that the Pharisees, that's half of the religious leaders, uh, but they do have some clout. The Pharisees had heard that he was gaining Notoriety, popularity, influence. He was gaining, gaining disciples, followers. And he was baptizing more disciples than John. So John's arrested, but Jesus is now baptized, supposedly baptizing everybody more so than John the Baptist ever did. Pharisees don't like this. The number of people going out to the Judean countryside to be baptized is, is just trending way, way up. Although the fact was Jesus himself did not baptize, but it was the disciples who actually put him in the water. They were going out there for Jesus. He, they, John, the author, just wants us to know Jesus wasn't the one baptizing. Verse 3, so Jesus, he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee, kind of his home turf. Now he had to go through Samaria to get back to Galilee. True, if you want to go the shortest route, you go right through Samaria. It's actually north. You go north through Samaria. Um, most Jews, though, would not go through Samaria because they didn't want to spiritually defile themselves with the dirt of the dirty Samaritans. So they actually walked around. But it says here that Jesus had to go through Samaria. Lots of reasons why he may have chosen to do that. I think one reason kind of stands above them all. He had a divine appointment with a woman at a well right in the middle of Samaria. So he went. And he's obviously being led by the will of God. And the will of God has this woman meeting him at noon at a well. And at wells in Samaria, and Jesus is going to follow the will of God far more than the cultural stigmas of that day. So he walks through Samaria towards Galilee, his home turf. He wants to be in Galilee primarily because the Pharisees don't have near as strong of a hold there. Galilee is still a Jewish country, but it's way removed from the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin, who's the ruling party. They, they kind of get to do their own thing in Galilee, and that's where Jesus will then base the next about two years of his ministry is out of Galilee. He can do it from wherever, so he chooses Galilee to do it from. Verses 5 through 9, we have some social barriers that are brought to our attention and some social barriers that Jesus, quite frankly, just breaks right through. Here we go, verse 5. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar. Uh, the word town is generous. It's a village. A couple hundred people, maybe. Uh, desert village is probably more accurate. Near the plot of ground where Jacob had given to his son, near the plot of ground that Jacob had given to his son Joseph, Jacob's well was there a quarter mile outside of Sychar is Jacob's well. It is still there to this day. You can go see it. And Jesus, tired as he was from his journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. Sychar's 30 miles north of Jerusalem. 
probably didn't make it there by noon. He's probably been traveling for a couple days, but he's traveling in the desert. It is noon in the desert, and there's a well. So he decides he's going to sit down at the well at noon in the desert and take a break. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy some food, probably for lunch. It's just a quarter mile away, but Jesus and the woman are the only ones there. Jesus says, will you give me a drink? The Samaritan woman said to him, you're a Jew, very astute. I'm a Samaritan, and there should really be an and there, and a woman. Two things culturally standing in the way. First, she's a woman. Um, In the first century, Jewish men did not speak to women in public. Sometimes husbands wouldn't even speak to their wives in public. So she's a woman, he's a Jew, not supposed to speak to women in public, not supposed to speak to women outside of your home. Okay, don't get all, that's 2,000 years ago. So, um, but it's true. So I'm a Samaritan and I'm a woman. The Samaritan, uh, not supposed to speak to them because they were not pure. They were not purebred Jews. They had bread, forgive the term, they bred with pagans hundreds of years before, and they weren't pure-blood Jews, and because they had defiled themselves by having children with pagans, upright Jewish Jews would never speak to Samaritan. Far be it a Samaritan woman. Jesus is a Jew. So this cultural barrier says, I'm a woman, and I'm a Samaritan, and both of those things say, you ignore me, yet I walk up, clearly a Samaritan woman, And you ask me for a drink of water. Now, verse 9, the Samaritan woman said, You are a Jew. I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Uh, That's a poor translation of verse 9. Uh, Jews obviously associate with Samaritans because the disciples had gone into town, into a Samaritan town to buy food. So you had to say, can I have some bread? They obviously associate with them. It's a bad translation. It should say um, that Jews do not use the same vessels as Samaritans, meaning plates, forks, cups, bowls. Uh, Jews do not use the same vessels as Samaritans. And that is very true. Uh, To drink from the same cup as someone, they were not worried about germs or bacteria, didn't know those things existed yet. They were worried about spiritually defiling yourself. If you drank after a Samaritan, you would get their religious cooties, and God would be mad at you. And you would have to literally go do things at the temple to get rid of those cooties. I mean, it, it's, there's, it's all in here. That's just my interpretation of it. But Jews do not drink after Samaritans. And you're asking me to get you a drink and you're wanting me to use my cup. We don't do that. You know better than that. When you head on down your way to your Jewish friends, they're not going to talk to you because you drank after me. Jesus doesn't seem too concerned. And in fact... And the first of what will be two kind of curveballs in this conversation, Jesus says in verse 10, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Okay, we're there, right? Are you there? Are you at the well? Noon, two people, man and a woman. Like Every woman in here, this is not a sexist thing, but every woman in here has been taught like, don't find yourself alone with a stranger. You know, if, if you do, like, make sure your people are close. And Here's this man who's just asked her for a drink. Not out of, not out of, I mean, socially wrong, but not weird. 
She says, hey, don't you socially have a problem with drinking after me? And he goes, do you know the gift of God? Like, that's psycho talk. I mean, let's be honest. Like, you're, you're sitting at the, the airport, sitting next to some strange man who just asked you to borrow your bottle of water. And then when you're like, you're not supposed to drink after me, he goes, do you know the gift of God? If you did, if you knew him, you would have already asked me for a drink of living water. You're obviously not getting this. Like, if you're there, this is crazy talk. If you knew the gift of God, and if you knew who you were talking to, you would have already asked me for a drink of water, and I would have given you living water. I mean, that's a curveball in the conversation. This woman at the well, she has some spunk, too. You'll see it here in a minute. She has some spunk. So she's not afraid of crazy Jesus. Okay, but Jesus, I mean, let's be honest. Verse 10 makes him sound crazy. Sir, verse 11, sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with. The well is deep. Where can you get this living water, though? She's mocking him. Okay, but don't, don't kid yourself. She thinks he's crazy, and she's mocking him. Sir, may I point out a few things? You don't have a bucket or a rope, and this well is over 100 feet deep. Okay? If I would have asked you for a drink, you're going to have to go somewhere else to get it because you can't get it from here. So um, can you tell me where you might get this living water, crazy man? Um, and, and by the way, just so you think, if you think you're going to get it out of here, well, are you greater then than our father Jacob who gave us this well and he drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Do you, you kind of hear the spunk in that? First of all, where are you going to get the water? Second of all, if you think you're going to get it from here, then you're a fool because you'd be saying you're greater than our patriarch Jacob who dug this well himself, went down through the rock, did so, hit the fresh, cool spring. If you think you're better than him, then good luck because he's the man. Jesus is not in any way thrown off by this. Verses 13 through 14, Jesus answered, everyone who drinks the water will be thirsty again. He points at the well, Jacob's well. Don't mess with Jacob's well. Anyone who drinks from this is going to be thirsty again. It's just a true biological statement. I mean, you can drink gallons of water, next day you're going to be thirsty again. Okay, so anyone drinks this, be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in themselves a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Still probably sounds crazy, but at least now we understand what Jesus is referring to. This living water is not truly water. It is eternal life. And he himself is the source of this living water, of this eternal life. And anyone who drinks of it will not thirst, but will have everlasting life. So we see that Jesus is speaking theologically, and the woman at the well is still very much speaking practically. So we understand the conversation here. Verse 15, the woman said to him, Sir, then I want that water. Just give me that water. Give me this water so that I will not get thirsty, and I won't have to keep coming back up here to draw water. The amount of spunk and sarcasm she says this with is through the roof. Like, I wish we had emojis in the Bible. or some, I, I really, because... She is saying this with such disdain in her mouth. Well, crazy man, then, I'll have that. If you're offering something that'll keep me from having to walk my rear back out here every day and get water because I'm never going to be thirsty again, I want it. Take two bottles. Like, what, how do I get this? 
Until verse 16, the woman at the well thinks Jesus is at best a little off. And at worst, certifiably crazy. Okay? But the proof is always in the pudding. Meaning, if you're going to come across crazy, talking like God, talking like the Messiah, talking about the gift, you are the gift of God and you have eternal life within you. If you're, you're going to talk like that, the proof is in the pudding. You better be able to produce. And instead of producing the water, because we know he couldn't, it's not physical water. Jesus is going to do something here in verses 16 through 18 that's going to radically alter this woman's view of him. Verse 16 through 18, he told her, go call your husband and come back. Okay, let's make sure we're still there. Because this conversation doesn't break up as much as I'm breaking it up. This is one continuous conversation. I offer you living water. You'll never thirst again. If you got it, I'll take it. Go get your husband. Okay, bam, bam, bam. Another curveball. You know, at, at first we read this and we're like, man, like, don't want to deal with a woman anymore. Go get your husband. Much bigger reason for that. Call your husband, come back. She responds, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right. When you say you have no husband, the fact is you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Okay. Up until this point, the woman at the well has been very verbose. Unbeknownst to us at this moment, we, we learn it in a few more lines, but when Jesus says, go get your husband, he is scraping off the greatest emotional wound that this woman has. And it would appear to anyone who understands the facts that this is a vicious, chauvinistic move. I'll, I'll take that water, sir. She's being very sarcastic. So he fires back. Why don't you go get your husband? We could see it that way. You, you, it, it could have gone down that way, but that's not how Jesus works. That's not who he is. It's not going to meet sarcasm with sarcasm. Jesus is always going to want to touch the soul of a person. He's going to want to get to the heart of the matter. And when she wants this living water, he's got to prove to her some way that he truly is the source of it. So he does go to the most emotional scab that he can tear, but it's not to tear the scab, it's to get to the heart. He says, go get your husband. Don't have one. Literally, in the original language, it's just three words. She's been, she's been very chatty up to this point, very, very quick-witted. I think she said this very somberly, almost tersely. Don't have one. You're right, you don't. You've had five. To make sure and paint the right picture in the first century... Jews and Samaritans alike, they had about the same laws for divorce. A man could divorce a woman for anything. Literally anything. Women had almost no rights. So, I mean, for her to have been cast aside five times, she still would have had the same cultural stigma that maybe a woman would have in this day, but really, truly, probably wasn't her fault. The man she's with now, not my husband. I'm not going to go down that road again. But it got her. That statement got her, woke her up, woke up her heart. Woke her up to see who she was truly sitting in front of. She realizes, I'm sitting in front of a man of God. I'm sitting in front of a prophet. I'm sitting in front of someone who knows 
some truth that I don't know. And I love how she immediately then recovers and kind of gets her spunk back. If you realize that you're not sitting in front of a crazy man, you're sitting in front of God. If you realize you're not sitting in front of a crazy person, you're actually sitting in front of someone who can answer questions for you. If you, if you have the wherewithal to do it, and I don't know that I would, but she obviously did. If you have the wherewithal to do it, you would then go, what's the one question I want to know? What's the one question I want to ask God? This guy obviously has info I don't have. So what's the most important question I can ask him right now? She has the wherewithal to do this, because verses 19 and 20. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. I know now because you read my deepest, darkest secrets, I can see that you're a prophet. Our ancestors, they worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. She's asking, which, who's right? She's asking a huge cultural and theological question about worship. And remember, we need to be there. Okay, so we're at the base of Mount Gerizim. Mount Gerizim's a thousand-foot mountain that literally the base of it comes to Jacob's well. They're sitting at Jacob's well. She turns and she points to the top of this mountain, and she says, my people, the Samaritans, say you have to worship up there. Your people, the Jews, say that we're wrong for worshiping God there. We're worshiping the same God, but we're wrong for worshiping there. They tell us we have to worship 30 miles south in Jerusalem at that temple. So she's asking the prophet, can you tell me who's right? I, I truly do want to worship God, but I want to worship God in the right place, in the right locale. So I, I, could, you, could you let me know? Because here's what I've been taught. As a Samaritan, up until 127 B.C., we had our temple there, just like you have a temple in Jerusalem. But in 127 B.C., a Jew led a revolt and came and destroyed our temple. And we're still mad about that, by the way. So we used to have a temple to worship in on the top of this mountain, but you guys destroyed it told us we were worshiping in the wrong place. But I went to Sunday school, and they taught me all this cool stuff about this mountain. This is the mountain where God spoke to Abraham. This is the same mountain where God offered his son Isaac. It happened on this mountain. Joseph, you heard of him? Yeah. His bones are up there. That's where, that's where they buried him, on the top of that mountain. Uh, Joshua? You know, came after Moses, led the Israelites into, into Canaan, into this land, into the promised land. He gave his final address up there. Ugh. But I've been taught this. I've been taught this is a really special place. I, I've been taught that on top of that mountain, that's where Noah's ark came to rest after the flood. That's where Noah and his family got off and built the altar to God to say this will never happen again. You know what else? I've been taught. I've been taught that God scraped dust off the top of that mountain to form Adam. She's looking at Jesus going, I've been taught that's the real deal mountain. I've been taught that I'm supposed to worship God there because of all that cool stuff. But then the Jews come in and tear down our temple, and the Jews tell us we're worshiping the wrong spot, that we've got to worship God in Jerusalem. Can you tell us which one it is? You're a prophet, and this is the biggest Theological question I've got. Where are we supposed to worship? I, I would prefer to do it in the right place. And Jesus will definitively answer her by saying that both parties, the Jews and the Samaritans, are wrong. They're wrong. Because they believe that you are to worship God in a one specific place, and that by coming to that place, you will experience God. They're both wrong because there's this 
new era that's being ushered in. And Jesus himself is the one bringing it in. It's this era where people will no longer worship God on this mountain or in that temple, but they will worship a God who is spirit, and they will worship him with their own spirit. And this teaching is new. Not many people in Samaria or in Jerusalem would, would buy this teaching, but it's not a new thought. It's, it's biblical. Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 33 says, This is the covenant that I will make with my people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds, and I will write it on their hearts. It's not going to be on paper anymore. It's not going to be on scrolls. I don't have to go to temples. I'm going to write it on their hearts and on their minds. I will be their God, and they will be my people. I will walk in community with them. I won't hide behind a veil. I won't be in a, behind, in a temple anymore. I'm going to be their people. What Jesus lays out in verses 21 through 24 is a very simple theology of who God is and how we are to communicate and worship him. This is where I wanted to get to, but we'll, we'll go through it quickly. This is the main point of today's message. Woman, Jesus replied, verses 21. And remember, we've already learned from our study of the Gospel of John that that is not a harsh term. That's simply like saying ma'am. Ma'am, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain or in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know, for the truth has not come to you yet. Okay, it doesn't say that, but just understand. They're worshiping God. They're worshiping the same God that we are, but they don't understand a lot because the truth has not been spoken. The truth that Jesus is talking about is the gospel. They've got the Old Testament. They've got the truth, but the truth, you don't know who you're worshiping because they have not received the gospel yet, and they won't for several more years. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation comes from the Jew. At least a dozen times in Scripture, that same statement is made. Salvation comes from the Jew, and it's true. If you read the book of Acts, salvation came to the Jew first and went out from there. The gospel came to the Jew first, so salvation is the gospel, went to the Jew first. We worship what we know, because the gospel's here. Jesus is the gospel. Yet a time is coming, and has now come, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For those are the kind of worshipers that the Father seeks. Here's the theology. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship him in spirit and in truth. The, this is not new. The Old Testament refers to God as a wind, as a fire. Like, the idea that God is spirit is, is not foreign. It's not, this is not the first time it's ever been said. But I think even for us, we understand this. I mean, how many of you picture God as an old man in a rocking chair with a long white beard and a cane? Like, that's God, right? I mean, God is this man. He's just, it's something we can quantify. It's a very wise man, very stately man, very honorable man, but he's a man. He's, he, he has form. The, the truth is that's not at all accurate. <clears throat> God the Father is spirit. And I'm not going mystical on you. I'm not going, like, Eastern religions here. God is spirit. That's how he is everywhere. That's how he's all know. He is spirit. And when we as flesh, when we as humans, when we as forms want to worship him, it's not about where we go. It's not about making sure you're in the right church, in the right venue. It's making sure that you understand that you're worshiping him from your spirit, your soul, your heart, your deep. So when deep calls to deep, that's the true worship that God our Father seeks. When his spirit and our spirit collide in perfect communion, that is the worship that our Father seeks. What Jesus is saying to this woman is that very shortly now, the gospel truth is going to come. The gospel truth says this, that Jesus, the Messiah, came to live, to die, to raise again on the third day so that sin may be dealt with and conquered, so that our fleshly nature can be put to death 
We can't worship God in our spirit because our spirit is flawed and sinful. But because of the truth of the gospel, our flesh can be put to death. And then our spirit becomes his spirit. So then our deep calls to his deep and we worship. And, and I know I may have lost some of you there, but just track. So this idea, church, that we worship God for 20 minutes on Sunday morning because you come into this building. That's just wrong. What you may do is worship, but it's not because of this building. I've heard a lot of people say, like, you should see worship in Africa. Like, you should just see it in a mud hut, out in the middle of nowhere, people just going nuts. Like, I've never experienced worship like that. You should see worship in a cathedral. Have you ever been to the cathedrals in Europe where you just feel thousands of years of history? You should, you should experience worship in a cathedral. You should experience worship in your bedroom. You should experience worship in a high school auditorium, in a church auditorium, in a blue auditorium, in a red auditorium. You should experience worship in padded seats or pews. What does that ultimately mean? Like, people aren't stupid when they're saying that. What are they saying? They're going, I experienced God in a blue chair in a high school auditorium, and from now on I think that's probably the best place to worship him. And they get all flipped out because they're like, it was the chair. <laughs> oh, goodness. Promise you the chair had nothing to do with it. Those moments where your soul connects to God's spirit and that beautiful harmony and communion come, that is true worship. It comes when you still your creaturely habits, your flesh, it comes when you stop worrying about if your hands are up or in your pockets, if you're seated or standing, if you can sing on pitch or not. It comes when you shut this off and you let something from deep within here freely express to God your great gratitude for who he is and what he's done through the gospel, through Jesus. And that church is the worship that God our Father seeks. See, we, we get it all confused when we think he wants us to worship at a night of worship. Well, he does. He wants us to worship on Sunday morning. It's true. He wants us to worship with tambourines and trumpets and banners. Possibly. He wants us to worship without musical instruments. Okay? He wants us to worship. We, we put all these parameters on how he wants us to worship, and none of them are biblical. Not one of them is biblical. He says, I want my worshipers to worship in truth, and that truth is the gospel, and then in spirit. I just want them to be free to do whatever I lead them to do, whatever my spirit calls them to do. If they want to bang a tambourine, hallelujah. If they want to run up and down with a banner, good luck. Don't hit anyone. If they want to, if they want to yell and shout, awesome. If you want to fall on your face in silence, that's great. It's spirit, crying out to spirit, and that is true worship that God our Father desires. There's an epilogue we just need to finish real quick. There's an epilogue, verses 25 and 26. The woman said to Jesus, I know that the Messiah called the Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. What she's saying politely is this. I hear what you say. It's quite confusing. It's definitely new. I'm not too concerned, though, because here in a little bit, the Messiah is going to come and, and 
explain all this to me. So thank you, Prophet, for your input. I'll wait for the big dog to come and clear this up. Nice way of saying it's not your pay grade. Verse 26, then Jesus declared, I, the one you're speaking to, I am he. It will be two more years in Jesus' three-year earthly ministry, two more years before he will make a statement like this again. Into a Samaritan woman by a well in the middle of a desert, away from everyone else, Jesus, for the first time in his ministry, publicly proclaims that he is the Messiah. Because this woman on this day says, hey, someday the Messiah is going to come and explain it all to me. And he goes, you're talking to him, and I just did. It's a beautiful declaration of his Messiahship, but that's not the takeaway from today. As the band comes back up here, it is verses 21 through 24 that I think we need to wrestle with and you need to ask yourself. When is the last time that you worshipped God just with your spirit? You weren't worried about what was going on outside, who was around, where you were at. You just worshipped. His goodness, who he is, and what he's done for you in Christ Jesus just caused you to live for him, caused you to serve, caused you to give, caused you to worship, caused you to cheer, caused you to shout. I want to try this morning, and then I I want to do it again tonight at 5 o'clock, to create an atmosphere of freedom, because that's the best thing a church can do. The the worst thing a church can do is tell everyone to dance a certain way, talk a certain way, be a certain, that's the worst thing a church can do, because then that's your bodies worshiping. That's the worst thing a church can do. The best thing a church can do is say, hey, we're going to give you a chance to respond to God, and and we're going to ask you to quiet your flesh, and the only way to really completely silence it is to apply the gospel to yourself and to ask Jesus by faith to come and to put to death all of your doubts and your fears and your worries and your anxieties and your sins and all that stuff that would hinder your worship. (coughs) And then with this beautiful like freedom in your spirit, just, just do what God prompts you to do. You don't move until he says to move. You don't sing until he says to sing. You don't You don't try to worship without him enabling it. I believe with everything in me that a spirit-led, spirit-empowered life where your flesh has been silenced by the gospel and where God's spirit leads you is a life of worship that God our Father seeks and desires. It's not minutes on a Sunday. It is a life. And so I'll say that again because this is the main point and then I'm done. A spirit-led, spirit-empowered life Every day, where your flesh is silenced, all that sinful junk is silenced by the good news of Jesus Christ, and where the Spirit of God leads you in all of your actions, in all of your conversations, in all of your actions, in all of your work, in all of your life, in all of your relationships, the Spirit of God leads you. I believe that is the life of worship that God our Father seeks, and I believe that is the life that will most glorify him. So today as we respond, I want you to respond in that way. By first, applying the gospel. If you've never done that, if you've never accepted Jesus Christ in faith to be for you, your sin-removing agent who atones for that sin for you and puts it to death, if you've never asked him to come and be the Lord of your life, then you start there. If you have, then you have tasted the living water, 
You have been given eternal life, but you've also been handed the keys to a spirit-filled life. But you have to then, in faith, tap into that, put your flesh at ease, and allow that spirit to reach out to God's spirit and to worship him. But some of you are long ways off from this life of victory and being spirit-led because of life, because of the doubts and the worries and the fears and the burdens. So if that's you, if you can't just live this spirit-filled life because there's all this stuff that's holding you back, it's not necessarily sin, it's just life. I believe that the spirit-filled, spirit-empowered life is a life of victory even over that stuff. Your worries, your doubts, your anxieties, your fears, your your hopelessness. I, I believe it's the spirit-filled, spirit-empowered life is a life that has victory over that. So I want you to step and walk in that victory. And one of the ways you can do that is by allowing one of our pastors, our prayer team members, to pray with you over whatever it is that is holding you back, that's causing you fear or doubt. So the response is really kind of threefold, but it's all just really one. Allow the truth of the gospel to penetrate your life so that you can then worship God in spirit and do whatever he asks you to do. And there's freedom in this place. There's freedom in this place to do that. If you want one of our pastors or prayer team to pray with you, they'll be up here to do so. But my hope is that we, church, will respond to God as our spirit cries out to his spirit, our flesh has been silenced, and we worship him because that's the kind of worshipers that he seeks. So Father, give us that great joy to quiet our flesh and to respond to you in spirit, to worship you with all that we have, to allow you, to, your spirit, to enable and empower that. God, I pray that those who are burdened would come and lay those burdens at your feet so that we might live for you, worship you, and be the worshipers that you seek. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray these things. Amen. Let's stand and respond to him.